are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Evergatinos. And we're picking up with Hypothesis 42 and we are in the first volume, but coming very uh, close to the conclusion of it, which is surprising for me. I didn't... Uh, it seems so overwhelming with the four for seeing the four volumes all at once to think that somehow we would be able to make our way through it. But uh, lo and behold, two and a half years later, here we are <laughs> finishing up the, the first volume. And uh, right now we've been talking about trying to maintain charity, allowing charity to trump all things. And he's been discussing in Hypothesis 42 uh, avoiding contentiousness in our discussions with others, interactions with others. And he'll be talking about uh, what causes this kind of contentiousness here in the remainder of Hypothesis 42. And then we'll be moving on to a brief hypothesis discussing the importance of trusting in the providence of God and embracing his will in all that uh, we encounter throughout the course of our, our life uh, as a prelude to then a longer hypothesis on humility, uh, which he sees as impregnable to the demons. And so, uh, as well as the rest of the fathers, that this is the virtue above all, that even in manifesting it in some way can bring about healings, miracles in one's life. And uh, and this is how powerful it is seen and something that cannot be mimicked by the demons themselves. So we have a lot of wonderful material to uh, go through here in the coming weeks. And today we are on page, again, 374 at the top of the page with the paragraph, uh, Be Sure My Beloved. So page 374. Be sure, my beloved, to submit your will to your neighbor in all cases because insistence on your own will destroys all the virtues. He who thinks correctly gently cuts off his own will, because he fears contentiousness like a serpent. For contentiousness destroys all spiritual upbuilding and darkens the soul, so that it does not see the light of the virtues. This accursed passion mingles with the virtues until it destroys them. And so this kind of contentiousness can uh, work its way in to even, as he says here, the life of virtue, uh, the love of the truth uh, can be something uh, that it takes hold of that then leads us to have this strong desire uh, to protect the truth, to defend the truth on 
behalf of, of Christ and his name, or to defend the truth about ourselves whenever we are insulted, when something uh, wrong has been uh, said about us or uh, something that has been sort of pointed in sharp. And uh, before long, it can darken the soul uh, to the point where we can no longer discern things with clarity. And I think part of the reason for this is that it begins to make us not trust in the providence of God, but to become calculating in the way that we engage in the things of our life and in relationships, thinking about how things are going to affect us or work in our favor, or the opposite, how something could work uh, to make our life more difficult. And so we become calculating in our interactions with others and the choices and decisions we make. And slowly this can make us blind to the, the will of God, what he's seeking to do within our life that might not uh, be what we imagine and might not emerge uh, immediately with success, at least in the way that we see it. It might, in fact, be through certain trials that we undergo, crosses that we are called to carry, that prepare our mind and heart for the perfecting of our own virtue, but perhaps also have an effect upon those around us uh, when they see it or encounter it. And so, uh, he describes it here as a serpent and that it will work its way into our life slowly unless we are vigilant and watching for it in order that we might strike it down uh, as quickly as, as we can. It's hard, I think, because we will rationalize and it's easy to do so. I think when we feel that we are attacked or that the truth is attacked or something virtuous uh, that we can come up with a multitude of reasons as to why we should insert ourselves or intervene in an aggressive fashion. And uh, there are times where aggression is needed. And we, we know the fathers talk about the insensitive faculty that allows us to respond in the face of injustice or in the face of temptation quickly and to strike that down or strike it out of our own Parts. One of the things that we struggle with, though, is making use of this insensitive faculty where we become incensed uh, towards others, with others. So we become angry towards them, and this breaks down that relationship and the charity that exists between us. And uh, there are times, again, where we have to truly trust uh, in the light of God. Uh, so, again, we don't become willful in those relationships in a way that would be contrary to what God would desire for us. He goes on to say, this is why our Lord Jesus Christ in showing to us that unless a man cuts off this dishonorable passion, he cannot make progress according to God, only ascended the cross after he had previously expelled Judas from the circle of the disciples. The passion of contentiousness results in all manner of evils, and everything that God hates re resides in the soul of a quarrelsome man. And so what we see enacted, even among the disciples, the betrayal of Judas, is what we can see taking place within us, that this kind of contentious spirit, this quarrelsomeness, uh, can break, break down the communion that exists there. And we see Judas... Uh, becoming contentious on various occasions uh, with a woman who 
uh, breaks the jar of ex expensive ointment and uh, and then, then certainly wanting to take things into his own hands, to force Jesus' hand, if you will, by betraying him, handing him over to uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. And we can see all these things, I think, enacted within our own hearts, that we can betray ourselves by the way that we respond to the things and that take place in our life and to others. By virtue of cutting off your will, the virtues are at peace with one another, and the governing principle of the soul becomes tranquil. This is precisely what God seeks more than all the other virtues, that a man should, be, should humble himself before his neighbor and submit to him in everything. The following vices engender contentiousness, loquacity, altering words to what is pleasing to each person, outspokenness, duplicity, wanting your own opinion to prevail. All of these give birth to contentiousness, and the soul of him who has these faults is a dwelling place of all the passions. The final statement, of course, is a very striking one. That if we are to give, if we give ourselves over to this, we become more vulnerable uh, to all the passions acting upon us. And again, this is a very hard thing. I think we have to slow down our our thinking about it. When, especially when they say we should humble ourselves before our neighbor and submit to them in everything. If there's one thing we don't want to do, is submit ourselves to our neighbor. Uh, we can barely submit ourselves in the sense of when we hear something on television, we would be screaming at the television as if they, people could hear us uh, in our disagreement. And so the individual doesn't even have to be there in order for this kind of quarrelsomeness uh, to infect our hearts. The, what, the spirit of the kingdom is a spirit of peace. And if we trust in the life uh, uh, that comes to us through Christ, that he is the Lord of life, uh, the governor of life, the Lord of love, and that that love is eternal, then we are not going to cling to our opinions or even the things that work in our favor as if they have this enduring quality. Uh, we will often treat the things that we want as the pearl of great price or the treasure hidden in the field that we are willing to sell everything for in order to hold on to it, to possess it for ourselves. And so we can be willing to sell our virtue, that is our charity towards the other, to win an argument. And uh, when it's put in those terms, I think things can become very simple for us. When we truly believe that what has been made possible for us in and through Christ is a participation by grace in the life of the Holy Trinity, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and that it is the life of the Lord that dwells within us, especially through the Eucharist, then what is it that we could lose, uh, let alone an argument, but what is it that we could lose within this world that could take anything away from us? And it's for this reason that we hear Paul say, you know, that he begins to count things, all things as rubbish in comparison to the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. That not that the things of this world aren't good or, or valuable, 
or not that we sh or, or there are times certainly when we would take the opportunity to speak the truth and to engage others. Uh, but we have to guard our hearts in the sense that we are living a distinctive and unique Christian life, that this is our identity, that it is Christ who dwells within us, that we were to put on the mind of Christ and live our lives in this fashion. And, um, you know, I think we need only look to so many of the stories that our Lord tells, the, the farmer who is you know producing so much that he doesn't know what to do with it and so tears down his his barns and builds bigger ones only to be called a fool because that very night his life will be taken from him he will die that uh what will all of that wealth and that grain offer him or the rich young man uh who is who approaches our Lord, and we are told that the Lord loves him, looks upon him with love, and asks the Lord, what must he do in order to, to obtain eternal life? And the Lord tells him to keep the commandments, and he says, well, I've kept all of these from my youth. And so wanting to give him, and wanting to satisfy the longing within his heart, he tells him, go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Let go of the things in which you've rooted your identity. Uh, not, th again, that those things are evil, but that he's rooted his identity in them so deeply that it becomes hard then to separate himself from that, even when he has uh, he who is life and love standing before him, that he could have the satisf satisfaction of his heart's deepest desire, and he cannot take hold of it. And so I think what is being taught to us here goes further than certainly our just quarreling with others. It goes to the heart of who we are as Christian men and women and our identity in Christ. Why hold on to that which is less than what has been given to us in Christ? Uh, if we look to one person who did fight, St. Paul, uh, about certain things. It was precisely about this matter. Uh, when the Judaizers wanted certain converts, Gentile converts, first to become Jews, embrace the dietary laws, but undergo circumcision before then becoming Christian. And Paul says, you know, this is absolutely absurd. You're going back to what signifies a kind of slavery to one's sin, rather than taking hold of uh, the fullness of life that is offered in Christ. You're asking people to go backward and to take hold of something that has no value uh, or that has been fulfilled in a way beyond imagination. And so you're distorting the gospel and you're putting them in jeopardy in terms of their own salvation as well as your, as well as your own. And uh, I think this often becomes the case in holding on to the things, again, that we think are important in our interactions with others. We can make them bigger than what they are, and we can make them bigger than God and the love that he's called us to in this life. And so I think what we are opening ourselves through all these different things, talkativeness, altering words, 
to please each other people. Uh, so being duplicitous, two-faced, uh, outspoken, forcing our opinion, all these things then open us up to all the passions because in, in essence, we are turning away from the simple love of the Lord. And we are losing sight, not only of our own dignity and identity, but the dignity and identity of others. We're treating them as individuals that are uh, adversaries for us rather than those with whom we share this deep, deep and abiding bond in Christ. I think if, again, these are the things I think Christians would benefit from reading in our own day, because I think when the world looks at us, it often sees us as being at one another's throats and over issues that I think those in the world uh, cannot understand that often there's a greater gentleness and tenderness amongst those who have no faith whatsoever than what Christians show one another. And, uh, and so reading something like this, uh, even in this one paragraph, it captures so much, again, is meant to prick the heart to say, oh, where is our identity really formed and fashioned? You know, what lens are we looking at others through as well as ourselves? Okay, any comments so far before we move on? Okay. A little comment from Abba Mark. Do not attempt to settle a difficult matter or a question in scripture through contentiousness, but with those means prescribed by spiritual law, patience, prayer, and unwavering hope. So not to use the scripture as uh, a tool for argument. And that would probably shut down 95% of the discussions uh, online or that take place between Christians, that we will use the scriptures or the catechism as a hammer with which to beat people over the head with and to try to argue them into our, our point of view. And the counsel here is, for there to exist patience, you know, long-suffering prayer, you know, that ultimately faith that gives a person the capacity to see the divine truth comes from God as a gift. So to pray for, for others and then an unwavering hope in the promises of Christ that he will make happen what he has promised that he will provide the grace that is necessary for it. And so our getting into uh, an agitated state and arguing with people and using the very gifts that God has given to us in a contentious way makes no sense whatsoever. It means that we have not embraced the, the spirit of Christ. Any thoughts about that one? <laughs> Everybody always dummies up when we talk about these challenging ones. <laughs> to use an old phrase from Archie Bunker. Okay, letter G from the Gerontcon. It was said about Abba Poiman that when he was invited to eat, though not wishing to do so, he would tearfully go so as not to disobey his brother and cause him grief. 
By brother, I mean one who lived with him, that is Abba Anub, or one of the ones with whom he dwelt. And so that even if one is fasting and uh, is holding to that role and has come to love fasting for the reasons that we've talked about uh, many times, that it deepens primarily, that it deepens prayer, that it humbles the mind and the body, that the humility of submitting oneself to one's will, of attending to the desire of his brother to go with him, even internally, if it causes him grief, to have to break away from his discipline, he will do so out of this greater charity and humility, as well as submission to the will of the other. That that humbling of the self is far greater in other words, than the ascetic discipline of the fast. If the fast is meant to humble you, then humbling yourself before your brother uh, and not doing your own will has greater value. It brings you immediately to, to the end of the ascetic practice to begin with. And, uh, and I like the way that it's framed here because I think sometimes when we talk about this, we talk about it in terms of hospitality, which is true too, that if somebody, if it's during a fast period or something like that, or, or someone invites us to have something to eat and it involves eating more than what we typically would, that out of a sense of hospitality, that we would do that, uh, kind of a generous, generous spirit or grateful spirit. And that's true, but I like how this is framed for us. It, it has, it's also, uh, letting go, it's speaking to us, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in terms of volition, our, our willfulness, that is often much more difficult to let go of, that we want to hold to things as they are. And when we are pushed out of them for whatever reason, uh, we can become very fussy about it, even, even though it produces this greater virtue. And then finally, number two, a brother asks Abba Poyman, how should those in a synobium live? The elder replied that he who lives in a synobium should look on all the monks as a single brother and keep watch over his mouth and eyes, and he will thus find rest. So isn't that beautiful to see every monk in the entire monastery as a single brother? Uh, that you are called to love and that you where you are called to maintain that relationship of, of peace and and gentleness with. And uh, you know, within monasteries, little groups can begin to emerge and little factions, just like it happens within the church as a whole. And it can split apart uh, a community very quickly until it falls asunder. Uh, because this contentious spirit can slip in the door. And where we, where we see ourselves as separate from others, for whatever reason. And when that help happens, it can be devastating. Whether it's rooted in this kind of malice or envy uh, it doesn't matter. It's destructive in the in the worst kind of way. But if we see the other as ourselves, and as one God has given us to love, then we are going 
to hold on to that and seek to hold on to it as the precious, most precious of all, all things. And uh, John Climacus, and also within this text as well, we find repeated warnings of not making the ascetic life an end in itself, that it is essential to the spiritual life and fundamental to our overcoming of the passions. But when we begin to see uh, it, these things as an end in themselves, then we, we can again elevate them above the other. And we find Paul in the scripture, if you remember, there are those who were eating, still eating flesh that uh, was offered to the gods and, you know, caused no small amount of concern among uh, some of the faithful. And Paul says that we are to humble ourselves and to uh, give way to that, not, not to, in a sense, uh, be condescending to the other as seeing ourselves as stooping down to them and being gracious, but rather for the love of Christ, that we, we are not bring, being magnanimous in doing, in doing that. We're being what Christ has made us to be, and, and we're loving the other. And so humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to their will and so Paul, even Paul saying here is a kind of, uh, of uh, there was a lack of complete understanding that existed yet. And but not to make that something that becomes a source of animosity or division within the community. John writes, would making asceticism an end in itself a type of obeying the letter of the law rather than the spirit? Absolutely. I mean, it, uh, it can function in the same way. It can make us pharisaical. And, uh, you know, that the criticism of the Pharisees is that they would, you know, strain out the, the gnat and swallow the camel. And so there was this practice of, like, uh, draining their wine or water through this gauze in order to make sure that they wouldn't be drinking anything impure. And so it was nutty, you know, on some level, and uh, they would go to these great lengths. But, he's, but Paul says, or the Lord says, but swallow the camel whole, that they would go to these great lengths to preserve this kind of ritual purity. But what was going on in the heart, the kind of arrogance and pride there they would be blind to. So it would be akin to swallowing the camel whole. And we can do the same thing in our ascetic life as Christian men and women, that uh, we can be very attentive to these things and the practice of the faith, but still the way that we look at others and treat others can be far from uh, the heart of Christ. Susanna writes, this is very helpful advice for me right now, as I have been staying at my friend's spiritual community and being so distressed at members' contentiousness wondering what to do and stay centered, bring a spirit of peace. And yes, and I, I think there's a little bit of counsel there from Abba Mark. Uh, I've read it over a couple of times in preparing for this, and just these three uh, bits of counsel stand out for me, patience, prayer, and unwavering hope, that these are the things that we hold on to. And if we can hold on to the, the, those, they can bring us through any number of these situations that are contentious, 
Uh, because if we are exposed to it, even against our will, it can agitate the heart and we can be forced or feel forced to take sides or feel that we have to insert ourselves in some way, even to stop it. And our first response should always be to turn to Christ and to be long suffering, to pray and to trust yeah, that what he can do within the uh, within the community, but also within our very virtue itself. Uh, there's a story later on in one of the hypotheses about uh, the somebody bringing a, a, a young woman of a roller to the monks to be healed because she has a demon. And, uh, but the, the ruler is warned not to bring her directly to the fathers because they will shrink back from doing that publicly. They won't want to be seen as miracle workers uh, and, or wonder workers. And so, you know, do it as they're bringing their, their mats to market to sell, you know, bring the daughter in, into their presence. And uh, the daughter begins to shriek in the presence of the monks. And in fact, she slaps one of them across the face and he turns the other cheek. And in turning the other cheek, we are told, the demon is cast out. And I thought that that's the most extraordinary story that the living out of the gospel, the fidelity, the obedience to the gospel allow. Uh, brings with it a kind of, of the power of Christ itself, that we often think about words and the need to, to, to say things, to clarify things, to make people understand, rather than living the gospel. So much emphasis is on words in our day, rather than living out the gospel in our life. And so the counsel that is given here, it's hard to follow because I think our natural inclination is to fix things in one way or another. So the circumstances that you described here, you know, being in a group of people perhaps, or with friends or a community where you see this going on, what does one do? And can one trust in the peace of Christ within one's heart to such an extent uh, and the love that he manifests in and through us simply by praying and living in communion with him, uh, that he can bring healing in and through that. You know, we believe the story of the man being healed when Peter walks by him and it's Peter's shadow that heals him. Why would we not believe then that our virtue or being conformed to Christ in such a radical way could really have the deeper impact. Yes, exactly. Love must return to its source in order to flow uh, flow ever onward, remembering to turn to Christ in these moments. Right. I think what makes us contentious is, in essence, that willfulness. Uh, we're, we are taking our eyes off of Christ. We are focused on the situation or the other person, and we want something to stop or to change or a view to change or to alter. And so we try to take things uh, under our own control. I've mentioned this before about the, uh, the young man in the gospel who is throwing himself into water, into fire. He had this 
demon that had possessed him and it was afflicting him in all these ways and the father's desperate and he comes to the apostles and they are not able to heal him and so the father goes to the lord and the lord heals him asking him how long he's had it he's had it since his uh forever since he was born and so he frees the young man and uh but what comes forward is that the apostles tried to perform the miracle on their own without going to the lord and uh he has to give them a, a little lesson in humility there such things are only overcome by much prayer and fasting he tells them that there are certain things that are only uprooted by the humbling of mind and body in such a way that we do give ourselves over to as you say he who is the source of love that's where the real healing comes from and so the saints who do perform miracles are, are the first to say it's not me. It, it's God. Turn to God and give thanks. Don't don't thank me for, for this. Any other comments about this hypothesis before we move on to the next? Let's see here. Uh, T. Friedman writes, my name is Tracy. Uh, the hardest Lent I ever had was when my spiritual director suggested a different type of fast, a fast from just what we are talking about. Taking his counsel to heart, I decided that a contentious co-worker would not disturb my peace and I would love her. Oh, yes, she was my Lenten project. <laughs> it was incredibly difficult. She did her best to destroy me and to talk about me to others and to, in effect, destroy our team during the most difficult season of work. I suffered through that Lent and beyond more than I can express. But through it all, I was at peace and grace followed. Yeah, I think as with so many things in the spiritual life, there is uh, a kind of violence that is done to the self. And we, we hear it in the gospel, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And there are times where we have to set aside our own will where it's not just biting our tongue, you know, on this or that occasion, but perhaps it means long suffering and enduring something that is very difficult and even threatening to destroy uh, what is very important or valuable. And uh, I think the, uh, the fuller that we can in enter into this, as you described, not only fasting from the contentiousness, but fasting in the other way, too. Uh, that is, in terms of from food and deepening our prayer, then it makes sure that we are turning to the source. Uh, that uh, not only to try to fix the situation or alter what the other is doing, but to make sure that we're really opening ourselves radically to the will of God, because sometimes it's going to be through our bearing of a cross in love for a period of time that the Lord wills. Perhaps it's to perfect our virtue uh, that is most important before uh, someone else changes what they are doing. And that's the harder thing to see, that perhaps at times what is lacking within us is the the perfection of our own virtue 
and we can see the other as the problem. And so I think our first movement for uh, so many different reasons is always to turn to Christ. Uh, because when we, the moment we trust in our own judgment and our, our evaluation of circumstances, situations, as well as our part in them, is where we, we can run into problems. John writes, at a retreat in June, I was given a holy card with the prayer of St. Charles de Foucault, an act of abandonment. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I'm ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Enter your hands, I commend my soul. I offer it to thee with all the love of my heart, for I love you, Lord. And so need to give myself, to surrender myself to your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence, for you are my father. Amen. I love St. Charles. And I think the... Uh, abandonment to divine providence is one of those classics that isn't spoken of enough. Uh, it's a beautiful book, not very long, and but it uh, really communicates something that if it's internalized will uh, have a great impact upon us. Alexandra writes, I've been going through a contentious year with a woman at work in the church office, the worst I've ever experienced even in my professional career. Yes, you know, I think we've we've often had, and probably everybody here has had those kinds of experiences where, you know, we could go through a period of years and feel and think to ourselves, I've lost years of my life to this. And it can be really very hard to trust in the promises of Christ uh in circumstances like that uh because we feel that we are losing something that we can never regain uh sometimes we can feel that way about illness too if anybody's you know suffered a sudden or chronic illness and you know where it sort of takes away things from your life that were very important to you you begin to wonder okay god where are you and what in the world are you doing here uh because uh, I'm getting tired of this and uh, I'm not accomplishing anything. And it can be similar to this as well, you know, where there is this, what seems to be this impediment to our life and the life of those around us by an, an individual or individuals. And it becomes very hard to be discerning in those moments when we uh, lose our peace of mind and heart. And so what we would want to strive for, most of all, is to keep our focus upon Christ and to live in that stillness that allows us to taste the peace of the kingdom. Because when everything around us is chaos, or when we lose you know, any kind of perspective on the situation in the sense of where we could see the will of God, it becomes more important to allow ourselves to be guided by faith, but also hope in the promises of Christ, that even if things seem to be falling apart around us, that God can make all things work for the good of those who love him. Abraham is often a good example of this. I mean, of certainly a person who lost everything. Okay, hypothesis 43. 
that whatever happens, happens by the justice of God. For this reason, the believer must always follow divine providence. Again, this is going to be a very challenging text for us. Uh, there's a lot, on for one second here, that we, I think, have to allow ourselves to read and listen to in, a, in an obedient fashion. Uh, whenever it comes to our spiritual reading and our reading of the scriptures, again, that ab adore, you know, to be obedient, to listen on this very deep level, to have this teachability, docility, uh, and with these kinds of teachings, it's very difficult. Anthony writes, just before we move on, I agree with the feeling of loss. There's an interesting verse in Sirach, or wisdom, I think. Let not the eunuch say, I am not fruitful. It's a verse pointing to Abraham's hope in an impossible situation. Right. Excellent quote. And I hope that wasn't pointed at me, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just kidding. I think that was lost on everybody here. But uh, uh, that's right. You know, when everything, you know, when, when we feel impotent in that sense, everything that we are doing uh, does not seem to promise that it will bear fruit. And everything seems to be undermined. Uh, it, we can become hopeless in that. And so the what you quoted there from Sirach or Wisdom, I, I can't remember which either, is that the, the fruitfulness of our life uh, isn't dependent upon ourselves. It's what God does through in and through his grace. And a lot of that can be hidden to us and certainly hidden to the world. There are, again, you know, so many saints that nobody know, knows about at all who simply li lived out their life. In fact, when we were, were at this Maronite parish over the weekend, uh, the pastor who's leaving after eight and a half years gave it's the 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 parish was called uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, St. Teresa of Calcutta. And so they were giving out these sort of plaques to these individuals who do all these different things for the parish and have done so for decades that nobody knows about and was completely hidden from everybody. And it was interesting. The bishop made the little children come up. And he described it to them perfectly that this is being given to someone who's served so many people, but nobody knew about it at all. They did it out of love for Christ. You know, it was so beautifully put, uh, but he had them present this award to each of these in individuals. And, uh, and so I think this is true. You know, it's often, you know, these individuals who remain hidden uh, in the gospel, we hear about this group of women who travel with Christ, too. We don't even know all of their names. And we're told that they helped su support him, you know, out of their own needs and cared uh, for him, especially when exiled, certainly from the synagogue. And he had to take to the roads and the hillsides and the seashore to teach. And uh, and so there is more hidden than, than what we see. And uh, indiscernible, you know, that's where the, the whole story of the weeds among the wheat, too. The, in fact, the, the weed is called the bearded darnel, and it looks exactly like wheat, 
And until it heads out and it's ready for harvest, you cannot distinguish the two of them. One is poisonous, in fact, the 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 uh, the bearded darnel, and so that's why he says you leave leave them till the harvest. But they're indistinguishable as they're growing next next to each other. And just one final comment on what you said there, Anthony, is that again, in the saints, you know, we we have this tendency to focus on the extraordinary, uh, but uh, it's important to remember that what we see in the saints. What we see that is most beautiful about them is the least of them and the least of what God has done within them. So the action of God's grace within their hearts, what, what he has formed them to be, is beyond our imagination, how he works within the human heart, even in what we see in the most beautiful of individuals. And Louise writes, a woman I know asks the beloved to teach her unconditional love. After a few months, her 30-year husband announced uh, her that he was to her that he was leaving for a young woman. Ouch, what an opportunity to react with unconditional love. Yes, so painful. And, you know, it's often in these circumstances that are crushing that the action of God's grace and the action of God's grace seems to be completely hidden, that something extraordinary is, is happening. The, the person might never see, and not again, not just for themselves, but perhaps for the church or for others whom they love, or even for the one who's betraying them, as our Lord you know, did for Judas himself. And I heard one priest, his name is Father Thomas Acklin. He wrote this book called The Passion of the Lamb, very small but superb book. And he said, it's not blasphemous to see ourselves stretched out with Christ on the cross, because in that in reality is the truth. We are, are so uniquely bound to him in his spirit and by virtue of what we receive in the Holy Eucharist, that our suffering becomes his own. And we are united to him in his redemptive work. And uh, and certainly a person who goes through this is being crushed, pinned to the cross with him. You know, a betrayal of, of love itself. And that's what we see on the cross. Okay. Hypothesis 43 from the Gerontocon. An elder said, if you are sick, and you seek to receive something from somebody for your needs, but he does not give it to you. Do not be distressed at him, but say to yourself, if I had been worthy to receive it, God would have informed the brother that he should offer me charity. Ouch. That's a hard thing. I think when we feel neglected, uh, and especially when we are sick and where there is a very real need, uh, there can be this sense where we feel justified in because we, we are not being treated with a love or generosity. And again, you know, we have to cling to Christ, you know, one who had nowhere to lay his head and the one who was abandoned and betrayed by all those who were closest to him, denied by Peter and all the rest. And uh, And so inevitably, people will fail us 
and for one clear reason, they're not God. You know, they they there are going to be ways, big and small, that people fail us and betray us almost on a daily basis. Uh, and not to give way to anger or bitterness in the face of this, but to be able to embrace it as Christ embraces the cross requires the depth of faith. The same elder also said, if you are invited to an agape meal and they see you in the lowest place, let your mind not murmur against your hosts, but say inside yourself, I'm not worthy to sit even here. For you should know that no affliction comes upon a man unless God permits it from on high, either to test his faith or on account of his sins. He who does not think in this way does not believe that God is a just judge. So, again, I think it's a hard thing for us to enter into a thought like this. And I think we can probably think of a lot worse things than than what is described here. Uh, but to perceive things, again, from the, the perspective of God and the depth of his love, unconditional love for us, that while we were enemies of God, that he took our flesh upon himself, its weakness, his poverty, and embraced our sin, as well as the consequence of death that there is not anything that he is not born. And so he who is perfect love and innocence has taken the lowest place. And so even when we are receiving Holy Communion, we have to ask ourselves, who is it that serves at this table and who is it that sits? And it's always Christ who takes the lowest place. It's all Christ is the, the one serving us upon his own body and blood in the Eucharist. And, you know, I think it's only when we allow ourselves to be drawn into that mystery of this unconditional love, are, are we able then to be drawn into the mystery of uh, the sin that we see within ourselves, our own poverty, but also the, the sin and the ugliness and malice of it with, within the world itself, that all has been assumed and that no one has taken a lower place than Christ himself out of love. And uh, this is the, the motivating uh, factor. And in fact, I think we have to go beyond what is being said here by the, the fathers, certainly in our faith, to be able to allow that to shape our, our minds and our hearts. Uh, that is not only to perfect our faith. Uh, it's uh, allowing ourselves to be drawn into the perfection of faith and love. Again, you know, we, we so often, I think, look at the spiritual life, again, as building something. Or that we are constructing something through the ascetic life or through our actions and our deeds. Whereas we are being drawn in to that which is perfect love and faith, long-suffering. And there's not one element of it that we see within our world that the Lord has not borne or from which he is absent. 
And uh, th these are the kind of things where I think we have to be careful on how we talk to others when they are suffering. You know, because I think so often the way that we talk about our faith is not rooted in a real experience of living this kind of love or enduring these kind of things, nor is it rooted in a depth of compassion for the other. You know, our, our actions at those moments when people are betrayed, or like the woman Louise mentioned here, you know, who's betrayed, our, our response is uh, to suffer with them, to weep with them. And again, this is an imitation of our Lord who weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, that tears are called for in the face of the ugliness of sin and the death that it brings. Again, this moves us so far away from a stoic view of life uh, that not only is Christianity uh, rooted in desire for God, but this love is not blind. In fact, it's opposite. It sees everything. And this is what we see in Mary. And when we're told, you know, when and Simeon says to her, a sword of sorrow will pierce through your heart as well. You know, it's not, it's not only, you know, it certainly is, but it's not only because of this unique bond that she shares with the Lord, but the depth of that faith and love and being so immersed in it that it allows her to see and participate in everything. So uh, we often have this tendency to turn her into this sort of, you know, plaster statue or that somehow, you know, her virtue made life easier. I think sometimes we think about that, about the, those who are virtuous and holy, that somehow they are spared you know, what the, the lot of us endure on a day-to-day -day basis, not realizing, you know, what it is that they are participating in, often on, on this mystical and very deep level. John writes, these experiences of painful, crushing, long-suffering remind me of what Cardinal Murray DeVal prayed for in his Litany of Humility. Absolutely. It's perhaps the most beautiful litany and the most difficult one to pray, honestly, <laughs> to really say those prayers, uh, because it, it, it stretches, you know, our understanding to its breaking point. And I think that's what makes it so powerful, because then it draws us to the heart of the gospel. What, what do we really believe? Is this, is this, what, we, is this what we hold on to? Anthony writes, the gospel insinuates some Jews called St. Mary a very bad name. That must have been hard to bear. Right. You know, simply because of the circumstances uh, of the time uh, would have been scorned, certainly. Okay. An elder related that the fathers had once gathered for their spiritual edification one of them suddenly got up and grabbed the small cushion, which was on his seat. Having placed it on his shoulders and holding it up with both of his hands, he stood in the midst of them all and looking up, uh, looking toward the east, prayed, saying, Oh, my God, have mercy on me. Thereupon he replied to himself, 
If you want me to be merciful to you, let go of what you are carrying, and I will show you mercy. And once again, he said, oh, my God, have mercy on me. Again, he replied to himself, I told you, let go of what you are carrying, and I will have mercy on you. After repeating this scene many times, he finally sat down. The fathers then asked him, explain to us what this action of yours means. The elder replied to them, the cushion which I carried on my shoulder symbolizes my will. I besought God to have mercy on me while I was carrying my will. And God said to me, let go of what you are carrying. That is your will, and I will have mercy on you. And we, the elder, concluded, if we want God to have mercy on us, let us forsake our own desires, then we will obtain God's mercy. And so rarely, perhaps, do we think things through fully that to say thy will be done means setting aside our own will, like this monk does with this cushion. We say that prayer all the time, and we repeat those words all the time, but again, not necessarily seeing the implications of that for us on a day-to-day -day basis, to set so something down to let it go and to let it go completely and uh the simplicity of these stories i think is what is helpful you know something like a cushion uh to let it go as if it's nothing to put it down and leave it down rather than carrying it around with us because it's not going to draw us where we need to go or bring us to what we truly desire alexander writes and during this past year of contentiousness, I've been praying the Cardinal's litany of humility. Watch out what you ask for, right? Watch out what you pray for uh, is true. Uh, we have to be cognizant of what we're asking the Lord for. And there's this wonderful writer uh, named Evely. And he wrote a book called Suffering. And he talks exactly about this, that at times there are prayers that we've said in our life to God in moments of desperation or of moments of inspiration, that we've told God that we would do this, that we would make this sacrifice. And there are times when God answers those prayers, maybe many years later, even. and. Uh, that there is no, I think what the author is getting at is that there is never a prayer that God does not hear. And so even those things that we whisper in the darkness or to ourselves or in our own mind, uh, that God often will answer in a way that is for our sanctification and for the sanctification of others, but it might mean the cross for us. Sheila writes, do we really want thy will be done? Because does that not mean he wants us humbled and like him? We don't, mostly. Uh, I think that's the, the truth. I mean, we don't, mostly, want to live uh, in the truth and to allow God to be God and to set aside our own will. Uh, you know, no, no matter how far we have pushed out that line, um, you know, the, the gospel reading where, you know, Peter 
is talking about how many times should I forgive my brother, Lord, as many as seven times. You know, in his mind, Peter thinks that he's stretched it out to this extraordinary, you know, you know, ex extent, you know, that he's got it. He understands what the Lord has, has taught. And uh, the reason I bring it up is because it prefaced the gospel. We didn't actually read it, but it prefaced the gospel that we read in the Eastern Rite this weekend, which is the man who owed uh, 10,000 talents begging that they be forgiven and they're forgiven and then immediately goes out and chokes a guy who need, who owes him like a hundred denarii. And uh, that, you know, Peter thinks uh, that he understands what the Lord's been saying about love and mercy and forgiveness. And so he says seven times and the law laid it down. If your brother sins against you once, you forgive him. If he sins against you twice, you forgive him. Three times, you forgive him. If he sins against you a fourth time, you do not forgive him. And so Peter thinks, well, I'm going to double that. And then I'll add one. As many as seven times, Lord. And so it prompts the Lord to tell this parable. And I, I did a little reading of, the, of what that those 10,000 talents mean. A denarii was a day's wages. 10,000 talents was 10 million denarii. So it would have taken him 2,739 years to pay off his debt to the king. So that, that this is how improbable it is. And the king surprises the crowd and forgives it. And yet he wants to go out and throttle somebody who owes him three months worth of wages. And so, you know, we often will have in our mind, you know, what it means to be gracious, loving, long-suffering. And, uh, but there often is this hidden line that we, we draw on the sand where we're not willing to go, go further. Or as Sheila says, you know, the, we often don't want to be humble. Well, we'll say, nope, no further. I've had it. I've had enough of you. So any final thoughts before we call it an evening? A lot to contemplate this week. Okay. All right. So we'll, we'll stop there for the evening. Have a wonderful week, everybody. And I'll see you at Climacus if you're able to make it. And uh, again, keep me in your prayers and I'll be praying for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to go bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.